Hello and welcome to PGRcast. I'm Olivia and with me today is my co-host Luca. Today we're interviewing Gemma Sharp. Previously at the University of Bristol, Gemma is an Associate Professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Exeter. So if you could just introduce yourself with your name, um, what your job is and um, your pronouns, please. I'm Dr. Gemma Sharp and I'm an Associate Professor of Reproductive and uh, Mental Health Epidemiology at the University of Exeter and my pronouns are she, her. Brilliant. Thank you for joining us today on PGRcast. I guess the first thing we want to ask you is what exactly do you do in your day-to-day job? How is it? How is your research? What are the, I guess, the highlights of your research at the moment? Yeah, so yeah, I work at Exeter. I'm um, an associate professor, so that means that I do research and teaching. My background is in epidemiology, but my research at the moment is in uh, women's mental health with a kind of like epidemiology slant. So kind of using epidemiological tools to address questions relevant to women's mental health. And I also teach on on women's mental health. So I get to teach and research on the same subject, which is is really nice. And it's sort of like my passion as well. So, yeah. And I guess for those of us who maybe don't know or don't have a background in biology, um, could you explain what epidemiology is and then how that relates to women's mental health as well? Yeah, so epidemiology is the study of uh, patterns of diseases and, and not just diseases, I guess, kind of health traits as well. The study of patterns of those things in populations and also the causes of disease and and health in populations. So I'm interested in studying women's mental health in in populations of women. Is it possible to maybe share for us that uh, are not so familiarized with that topic, uh, why is it important to categorize uh, women's mental health as a subset of uh, mental health? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So women are at particular risk of certain mental health conditions. So women are way more likely than men to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression. There are other mental health conditions that are that have a kind of higher rate in men, and in particular suicide is higher in men. So there's kind of lots of different possible reasons why we might see higher rates of depression and anxiety in women than men. And, and and I'm sort of looking at that through a biopsychosocial lens. So looking at the uh, biological reasons, so things like reproductive hormones, which are obviously quite different in men and women, but also social factors. So the way the kind of role of women in society um, and the way that that might Im- impact mental health and also cognitive factors. So things about the way that women might tend to think that might be different from the way that men tend to think so for example we know that women are more likely to ruminate so kind of um think about bad (laughs) bad things or experiences and yeah these are all kind of like obviously pretty broad generalizations about the differences between men and women and obviously it's not quite as black and white as that but this is why we're looking at mental health through this kind of gender lens because yeah, it seems that we do see these kind of different rates of disease in men and women. And because that's 
yeah, quite unique, really interesting research. I was wondering what kind of led you down that pathway because um, I read that you did your undergrad in biology. How did you get from a broad subject like biology into what you're doing now? Yeah, it's been a bit of a strange journey, I think. So so I started off actually at uni doing psychology. I did a, a year of psychology and then I decided that I, I only really believed the biological psychology stuff which was a it was pretty naive at the time but I but I really liked the biological psychology side of things so then I switched to biology and then I was just really into animals so so I did I chose all of the modules based on like how much stuff there was to do with animals in there so essentially did a degree in zoology um, and then I left and worked in an office for like three years and during and it was nothing to do with biology and then during that time I I I guess I wanted to go back to uni like I was I was sort of missing learning stuff so then I I did my my master's in reproduction development at Bristol and really I chose that because it was cheap at the time and it was it it was a distance learning course which meant I didn't have to move to Bristol I could still live in Cardiff where I was living at the time and it was part time. So I meant that I could fit it around full time work as well. So there were like lo- lots of kind of practical reasons for me choosing that that weren't necessarily linked to the topic, even though it was biology. Um, it was very human focused and I was still very much like into the animal stuff. And I was thinking I might actually do that course and then do it and then become a clinical embryologist. And maybe even like a clinical embryologist doing kind of IVF for animals. So I don't really know if this job exists, but that's what that's what I was kind of thinking. And then and then when I started doing the course, I really liked it and I really liked the human element of it. And then I ended up doing a PhD in reproductive health. So kind of taking it very much in a human direction. And yeah, and then and then just decided through that that I uh, I really liked epidemiology so statistics rather than kind of being in the lab and then ended up doing <laughs> epidemiology and then coming kind of back full circle and ending up in a psychology department. That's really interesting and I love how like windy it is as well it just goes to show that like the the journey to where you end up doing what you're doing is never what you kind of set off or intended to do just randomly do you ever regret that you didn't look more into the animal side of things at all or are you like super happy with where you are right now so I'm super happy with where I am right now but I also sometimes think it would be really cool to combine what like my interest because I still really like animals it would be cool to combine my like work interests with with uh with that somehow and um, I, what I really like about the department I'm in now is that they have an animal behavior group that looks at traits and uh, behaviors in animals that are I guess comparable to some of the things that we see in humans and so there's a group there that has looked at menopause in killer whales and I sometimes think oh that's really cool like I should try and do something with them because um, yeah that would kind of unite two interests. <laughs> I guess then that leads to the reason why interdisciplinary research is a really great thing as well, because not only is it great for the field, because you've got loads of different people from different experiences working on the same thing, 
but then also it's great for the researchers <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't I, I feel like I couldn't not do interdisciplinary research now like I just I'm a bit of a kind of I find that like shiny I saw, I saw somebody describe this once as like being an intellectual magpie where you see things that you think are interesting and then you just like follow them and then you move around from thing to thing and I feel like that's me at the moment it's just like oh that sounds cool oh that sounds cool maybe I'll give that a go and yeah and that's the really nice thing about being like interdisciplinary work is like you get to work with all these people work on these interesting questions but without having to like be like go back to uni and retrain as like an expert in yeah animal behavior I think that's probably a really good thing for a lot of us who if we really like our subjects but then get very distracted by um everything else that's going on like making a podcast for example yeah. <laughs> um. that's true olivia um, <laughs> um yeah so can you maybe share now with what was your pgr experience like uh, after all these uh different experiences uh beforehand yeah so um yeah so i did my phd up in edinburgh um and as i say it was very kind of uh, it was in a it was in a department that was attached to a hospital, which was very different from um, my undergrad, uh, where I'd been doing all this stuff to do with like uh, zoology and ecology. And now I was like in a um, office attached to a hospital, and it was very human focused. And I really enjoyed my PhD. I think taking three years out and working in an office made me really appreciate that they were like paying me, albeit not very much, but they were paying me like to do research. And I, re I really appreciated that. So I really, I, I really enjoyed it and felt like it was kind of a, a privilege for me to be able to do it. I really enjoyed the research I was doing. Uh, I'm not gonna say it was totally uh, fun every single day, because <laughs> there were definitely days where it was very uh, difficult. Um, I think I felt a little bit like a fish out of water because I was in this lab um, attached to a hospital and I felt like I was coming at it from a, a quite a different place and, and lots of people there had um, lots of experience working in labs and I'd, I really didn't, I'd, I had hardly any experience working in labs and then the, the stuff I had done as part of my undergrad I've, I've just not been very good at it so so I yeah I found that quite difficult but the university were very good with that my supervisor was very good with that so quite early on we sort of identified that maybe lab work wasn't my strength but the, that maybe stats was and other there were lots of other people there that didn't like stats so I was thankfully didn't have to do that much lab work in my PhD got pushed into the kind of more epi um and stats kind of side of things yeah and really enjoyed that it's interesting that you say that you were the one who liked the stats in that side of things because I think my background was I worked with a lot of conservation biologists and um hearing from them it's a uh oh we love the animal side of things and most people really hate the fact that you have to do stats um so it's interesting with you having a similar background in that that you were like actually stats is is great yeah I think like other people hated days where they had to just sit at their desk but I absolutely loved that <laughs> like just having some data just sitting and analyzing it and I realized then like oh actually maybe this is like a bit of a niche <laughs> like maybe I should run with this <laughs> because not many people seem to like it um 
and and yeah I, what, what I really like about what I do now is that I I get to to do stats essentially but I am using it to answer some questions that I feel are really applied and really sort of like they're not really abstract you know they're sort of very grounded in the thing I'm kind of interested in in women's mental health so yeah excellent so can you maybe say about the skills what were the skills that you brought then to your PhD then maybe name a few that you gained through your PhD which you mentioned a little bit with stats yeah so I, I think I developed so many skills through my PhD I did loads of science communication and public engagement through my PhD and I mean I went into it uh, a very very shy person and I'm still pretty shy but like I um, did a lot of kind of public speaking and things like that through my PhD which was a really nice thing to be involved in I also got like a, a lot of organization skills that I feel like I I was kind of using before because I was working in this office so it was like an admin role so it was essentially just organizing things and I, so I feel like I was able to bring that to my PhD but I really developed my skills through doing it in terms of sort of timekeeping and those those kind of things that people call soft skills but actually are really hard I think <laughs> And I used to organize a fair few kind of public engagement events and activities. And that gave me a real insight into things like how you bid for grants, budget management, that sort of thing. Team management, because we used to have people come and help us on the events. And yeah, just loads of things that I feel like I just would not have picked up if I hadn't done my PhD, in addition to all the academic skills like um, all the statistics that I picked up and and you know R coding and, and things like that they, in a way it's nice when you're doing a PhD because you do have a little bit of time to actually pick up those skills I think like when you get to the stage I'm at now a lot of the time you don't really get a chance to kind of really develop some of those uh, more kind of analytical skills because you just don't have the time so yeah, I really I really enjoyed yeah just learning learning a bit more about stats and using uh, R and things like that. Oh, brilliant! And then, is there any skill that you are not using now, but you really developed? Yeah, so I I guess when I first finished my PhD, I was really aware that in my first postdoc job, although I was still learning loads and it was and I, I was really interested in what I was doing. I really wasn't using a lot of the knowledge I had about reproductive health. And I felt like that was kind of something that I had that was quite unique, but just wasn't being used. So I really like now that I get to combine some of my background in reproductive health with the stuff that I've picked up since then. And I guess in terms of those kind of other non-academic skills that I picked up in my PhD, I don't do anywhere near as much science communication and public engagement stuff as I used to. And so, yeah, I feel like those skills are, are maybe dropping off slightly, although teaching helps me to kind of keep in touch with some of them, I guess, in terms of disseminating information in a kind of lay way. It's interesting that you mentioned that because um, actually the way we got in touch with you was through uh, another PGR who had heard you speak at a pint of science in the past. And Obviously, that's something that you still seem really keen on the communication side of things. So for those who don't know, could you explain what a pint of science is, why you got involved with it, and I guess how others can as well? Yeah, so as far as I'm aware, a pint of science runs once a year. 
And it runs, uh, I think they've got different branches all over the world now, but there's been one running in Bristol for quite a long time. And it involves academics talking about their research in pubs, essentially, on, I think it runs over three evenings once a year. And you'll have like maybe three speakers at each event, two or three speakers. And yeah, the one that we did this year was at the Green Bank pub in Eastern. And I got involved because I I was asked if I would do it. I can't remember why, how that happened, but, but I was asked if I'd do it. And I thought, I don't, I really don't have time, but I, but I really want to do it because I think it's really important. And like I say, I, a lot of the, the kind of public engagement stuff that I was doing, I felt had kind of fallen by the wayside and, and I really wanted to, to get back involved with it. Um, I do think that presenting what we're doing is really important. Um, I think it's really important for us to be able to develop the skills, to be able to talk about what we do in an, in a kind of non-technical way. But I also think it really helps with setting the direction of the research that you're doing. If you can speak to people and listen to the qu- sorts of questions they're asking, um, it's, it's so easy to get really bogged down in the details when you're working in, on something from such a kind of academic point of view. I think speaking to other people about it can be really enlightening. So I said yes to it. And one of the other reasons that I really wanted to do this event in particular was that it, it was in Eastern. So it wasn't just in Clifton or in the centre of Bristol where, where all of these things are and you'd get like maybe the same people coming to it and they would probably just be friends of the other academics that were presenting and that sort of thing. And I thought maybe if it's in Eastern, it might be, uh, you know, we talk a lot about hard to reach communities and I actually don't think that these communities are hard to reach necessarily. I think it's just that we're failing to entice them into Clifton. You know, like if we go to them, it's not that hard to get to these places. So I thought that, yeah, it might be nice to do it yeah, somewhere like Houston. And I used to live just around the corner as well. So that was the, and I knew the pub was really nice. So, so yeah, that was a big draw as well. It is a very nice pub, to be fair. Um. <laughs> And then just you were talking as well about obviously you do a lot of teaching and that's how you see your kind of science communication in a different way. I guess science dissemination potentially because of the work that you do. Does that influence your teaching at all or the relationships that you have with your students? Yeah, I think it probably does. All my students are women. (laughs) So that's something I noticed. I used to teach reproduction development and that just used to attract mostly women to join the course. And now I teach women's mental health. And I mean, psychology students, uh, there's a big gender divide in psychology anyway. But women's mental health, as far as I'm aware, only female students have signed up to that course. And I was putting together the materials for the course the other day and I was thinking, is this just turning into like a sort of feminist rant? (laughs) Like, are we just going to be sitting there talking about how awful it is to be a woman? Um, And I don't want to make it like (laughs) too ideological, I guess. So, yeah, there is a a little bit of of certainly my research influences, my teaching, my teaching influences my research. I mean, that I, I, I don't think I'd do it if that wasn't the case. Like I it has to sort of tie in together for me to feel like, yeah, cohesive. But also, yeah, they just inform 
each other so well I think and you and you really grasp a subject on like a whole new level when you teach it so in terms of developing my research practice teaching is a yeah, massive part of that. That's really great to hear and I guess that other PGRs as well who may or may not be doing teaching of modules as well um, that's good to hear the importance of teaching with them with the research as well. Yeah like I say it's, a, it's kind of another level of of understanding and being able to I think it really helps with your passion for the subject as well because sometimes if you feel like I mean we all get days where we feel a bit like is this even interesting what I'm doing like I'm spending my whole life doing this does anyone care and then sometimes when you teach it you're like oh loads of people care (laughs) like on a good day. (laughs) Yeah I would agree that a lot of people do care once we share what are we teaching or researching. I was wondering is there any way how to involve men more into that because I suppose uh, men do play a role in women's mental health as well. Yeah, I would, so I've been thinking a, a bit about this because I, I run a research network of um, academics across different institutions that are interested in the links between menstruation and mental health. And there's probably about 50 of us and there's no men. And I've never, you know, there's, <laughs> there's never been any eligibility criteria. It's just that, you know, this is what we've kind of managed to amass in terms of like, I guess we've recruited to that group through kind of a snowballing effect of oh and you know my friend would really like to join this or like I've got a colleague that works here she'd really like to join and so that's how it's kind of happened and I've been thinking about how we could get more men involved because I feel like one of the problems with women's mental health and women's women's health in general is that it's kind of been historically at least thought of as as a woman's problem and i think this is the reason why we see this kind of massive gender health gap one of the reasons i think is potentially that the health of women hasn't been advocated for by people who aren't women and so if we can get more kind of men involved then I feel like that would be useful. I know from speaking to male academics that they're really kind of interested and supportive of the research. Some of them have said to me that they wouldn't want to join the network or they wouldn't want to kind of be involved on grant applications or whatever because they would feel like they were stepping on our toes and like we're a group of very capable women and we don't need a man wading in and saying well I'll be I'll come and help (laughs) but actually that is exactly what we need like we need more people to kind of champion women's health I think and having the support of male colleagues is a really big part of that. So in terms of how to get more men involved, I don't know. I've not, I've not, I've not sort of got there yet. But I think maybe trying to get that across to people that like, don't worry about like being this kind of, yeah, that we're going to sort of think of you as this like unwanted saviour character. Like we, like we actually do need yeah, more people to kind of be supportive. Excellent. And then just another question is, do you feel that men's mental health is as equally researched? Do you maybe have any insight into that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I feel like there are spe- there are some things that are specific to um, a kind of female experience that um, that means that there are specific mental health challenges. So I'm, for example, I'm interested in the link between menstrual and mental health. There's a lot around kind of post or perinatal depression and the and kind of role of reproductive hormones in influencing mental health. 
But then I also think there are lots of things that are specific to men or that are uh, experienced by men and women equally as well. And for example, like I mentioned, suicide rates are much higher in men. Men are less likely to go to the doctor and, and, to, and to talk about their mental health. That seems to be that's potentially one of the reasons why women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression and anxiety is that they're more likely to present to the doctor with depression and anxiety. There's also a lot of stuff around actually depression looks quite different in in men and women and and may involve kind of more the more classic symptoms of depression that we think of might actually be a kind of more female experience and that and males might might be more likely to experience things like anger and and increased uh, activity and, and things like that. So I think that there that's kind of focusing on women's mental health isn't sort of necessary to say that um, we're at kind of we're, we're in this kind of competition with men's mental health, where we need to say one's more important than the other. That's kind of not not what we're saying. And I think that actually both fields need more research because in general, mental health and particularly mental health through this kind of gendered lens hasn't really been researched enough. No, and, and that's really interesting because obviously it's a really big topic. And I think especially at um, universities as well, it's a big issue, mental health in general. So thank you so much for talking about that. One of the things that we were wondering as well is, I guess, through any of the work that you have done or thinking back to your PhD or any other academic experience and then your postdoc position since, have you had any industry partners? So I guess I don't know if you would call a hospital an industry partner. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the terminology. But yeah, have you had other partners um, in addition to hospitals as well? Yeah, so I've not done much with industry. It's something I'd like to explore more of. We recently were contacted by a company that was making menstrual cups and they wanted to know whether so these menstrual cups they were developing had like a sensor in them that could um, sense how much blood was there and they were talking about using that to diagnose like heavy menstrual bleeding or or to just kind of uh, be able to kind of more objectively uh, measure amount of blood loss but they were asking us whether there was anything else that they could potentially put a sensor in there for so like to look at any kind of biochemical marker of something. And I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, we've, we're kind of in very early stages of talking about that. Most of the kind of external partnerships I've been involved with have been with charities. So we've done quite a lot with various different charities. One, one of the kind of areas of research that I've been involved in is a cohort study based in Bristol of children who've been born with a cleft lip or a cleft palate. And we, within that group, we do a lot with the Clef Lip and Palette Association, Clapper, their charity. And yeah, like sort of organising events and patient participant involvement groups and things like that. But yeah, so no, nothing kind of with industry, like what I kind of think of as proper industry, like businesses that are making money and stuff, but lots of like third sector stuff. Do you think that there's place for more businesses to be within this research, I guess, potentially to spread the word or to get, I don't know, other people interested? Yeah, I think there probably is, particularly around the kind of menstruation stuff. I'm aware of like a lot of businesses who are making products like um, menstrual products, so pads and 
cups and things and and they seem to sort of be working uh, within this positive period culture kind of helping people feel like empowered by their menstrual cycle and things like that so in terms of like mental health that obviously feeds in quite nicely and then also the other big thing in the kind of menstruation research side of things is the all of the kind of femtech apps so things like flow and clue and these apps that you can download to track your menstrual cycle and a lot of the time those are geared towards helping people avoid or become pregnant but actually just using those to track your menstrual cycle and potentially other things that we would be interested in so things like mood uh, and other kind of mental health related measures would be really interesting. So yeah, that, that's definitely something I want to explore a bit more of is, is getting in touch with some of these femtech companies. And you mentioned that you do use big data in um, the work that you do as well. So I guess, have you had access to any of the um, data that's come from those apps before? Or is that something that you could look into? Yeah, that's something I'd really like to look into. So I haven't, um, most of the stuff I do is using cohort studies. So uh, research studies that were specifically set up for the purpose of research. Um, and there are, there are some big pros to using those data that's been collected specifically for research. And that, that, you know, the questionnaires that they use are validated. The, the, the potential for bias is potentially lower. The thing about the, the data from the apps is uh, I think it's likely to be very noisy. So some people are going to download the app and use it for like a week. Some people are going to use it a lot, but maybe only when they're trying to get pregnant and that sort of thing. So you're going to get some kind of weird but interesting like selection factors going on with the data. But I would be really interested to like explore that and try to pick that apart a bit and see if there is useful, I'm sure there is useful information that you could get out of kind of big data. What what I find really exciting about that is, so I, I track myself using my Fitbit. And what I really like about that is I've been using that for like a year and a half and I've already got big data, but just on me. <laughs> so it like takes my heart rate every 30 seconds and yeah and and I think that that's like I can already see oh this is really sad but I basically have like looked at my data so I spent like spent weekends looking at my data and you can already see um trends so I I know my my resting heart rate goes up just before my period that sort of thing I didn't know that until I started looking at my data you know um so I really I get really excited about the idea of having that much data but on more than just me so yeah it's definitely something I want to look into I do the exact same thing with my Fitbit and yeah the things that you notice from it is really interesting but I think now that you've mentioned that about your heart rate I think I'm gonna look to see if that's the same case with me now as well um, so yeah thanks for that it's really interesting hearing about how big data can be used in all of these, I guess, social ways as well. Because I think that a lot of people probably get scared or nervous when you say something like big data, because then people think of, I guess, Google and Amazon and all that. I had a question actually with the apps and the data side of things as well. Obviously, in the news recently, there was the whole Roe versus Wade in America. 
And then some people in certain states were told to stop using their period tracking apps. I don't know what you would say to that or how much you would know about it. What's the danger in that? And is that something that we should be worried about here in the UK as well or, or not? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there, there's been a lot of stuff around like dodgy practices by some of the companies that have released menstrual tracking apps. It's not stopped me using my Fitbit to do it. But yeah, I mean, I, maybe like a couple of years ago, I would have said, no, it's all fine. But like, I don't know now. Like, it seems like... Um, women's reproductive rights are just sort of tanking so in a way yeah I don't know I don't know what the future's going to hold but yeah I think holding some of these some of these apps to account is important I found an app recently that was it's called drip and it was set up by some people who were concerned about the kind of sharing of data from some of the other tracking apps and it actually keeps all the data locally on the phone doesn't send it anywhere and doesn't share the data because it doesn't actually have access to the data and I thought that's really good and that's really good from a research perspective as well because we could use that in a research study and reassure participants that their data weren't going to be sent to like all these different third parties and things so yeah so that kind of whole stuff around like data security and governance with using the menstrual trackers is really important and something I'm yeah, trying, trying to keep sort of abreast of. And then in light of the data, I'm aware that uh, athletes are well monitored, right? Especially a female now having the menstrual uh, cycles, etc. So w what's your view on that then? Because athletes by default, they need to perform when it's required, right? And that's quite difficult to basically get everything together to perform on the day. And then What's your view on different, let's say, athletes that require perhaps a lot of training when they are young uh, or maybe they are younger and then some sports that require to push their limits of their athletes a bit later on when basically the time to have a child is and, and so on? Yeah, I always find it interesting that a lot of them, the research on um, menstruation and the reproductive health of women is linked to athletes. I find it interesting that the only time that people can care about women <laughs> is when they can potentially make some money out of their bodies. So that's kind of one soapbox that I get on occasionally. But <laughs> I think it's really interesting. So I was recently speaking to somebody who's done research on dancers And a lot of uh, young dancers will stop their menstrual cycles because they are, I think, of such low weight that their menstrual cycles stop. And this, but this happens in athletes as well, right? Like if like runners or whatever, if the fat mass index is below a certain amount, then periods tend to stop. And that's a body kind of a protective mechanism and kind of something that we would, that we see and we would necessarily sort of expect. I think looking at the kind of mental health aspect of that would be really interesting so from what I understand from speaking to this other researcher is that within the kind of dance community stopping your periods is actually desirable whereas outside of that community it wouldn't necessarily be the case I guess same, same with eating disorders perhaps it can be a sort of marker of it's sort of working and so exploring that a bit more would be really interesting I just wanted to ask you one 
final question. Well, actually two questions. One to do with international development and does your research translate overseas as well? And have you done any of that work or do you know people that are also doing that work as well? Because I guess it's a a different type of stresses that women would be facing in poverty. Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely. So one of the things that we're really interested in is the kind of cultural um, differences that we might see. But because we're really interested in the kind of socio-cultural and political impacts on women's mental health and menstrual health, we kind of really recognise that probably a lot of the factors are quite cultural specific or like geographically specific. So my, my research has been almost exclusively UK based or using cohort studies from like North America or uh, Northern Europe usually. There are people in our network and this is one of the nice things of having a kind of interdisciplinary network across kind of different institutions as well is there are people in our network that very much their kind of thing is working in lower middle income countries particularly around the menstrual health side of things because there are really unique challenges in some some countries that are really quite different from the experiences in the UK. And so one of the nice things is that we can do some of those kind of cross context comparisons, but also just focusing on the context themselves, I think is really important. Excellent. And I also have a a final question, which is, would you give any specific advice to PGRs? Yeah, I don't know. So I can sort of reel off a lot of the things that people say, like, oh, just do everything, like follow your heart and just do everything you want to do and do Um, and just yeah, keep going and try hard and all of that. I don't know, like what's my advice? I think my advice is is to just enjoy it, like try to enjoy it, but also recognize that not every day is going to be enjoyable. <laughs> like some days are hard, and just to keep keep checking in with yourself about that and just checking that on on average the the enjoyable days are out outweighing the bad days, I think. Um, and that you're still kind of like enjoying it and doing it for the right reasons, I suppose. There were definitely days where I was thinking, I just want them to write doctor on my on my driving license and then I'll be happy. And that's the only reason I'm doing this at this point. <laughs> and and then there were other days when I was like, no, I love the research and stuff. And yeah, you need you need some of those days. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. I feel like that resonates with all of us. So yeah, thank thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to PGR Cast. November's episode was brought to you by the wider PGR Cast team, produced by Olivia and Luca, edited and mixed by Michael Rambelo. In December's PGR Cast episode, Sebastian will host Dr. Natalie Lancer, and you will hear all about coaching. PGR Cast episodes are available on SoundCloud.com forward slash. Bristol Doctoral College. We hope you enjoyed this episode and press play again soon.